December 25, known of course to everyone as Christmas Day. The history of Christmas is a matter of historical fascination. A pagan festival marked by immorality was taken and used to encourage people to remember that Jesus Christ had come into the world to save sinners. And so historically, the pagan becomes Christian in some form, but now, today, the Christian has become pagan. And so, I remember as a child that sense growing in the churches and people beginning to share cards and make the point, Jesus is the reason for the season. Emphasizing again that this time was about the Lord, not about everything else that was present in the world. But if Jesus is the reason for the season, well then sin is the reason for Jesus coming into the world. And so as I said in the open air last Sunday, perhaps we could say that sin is the reason for the season. Man's rebellion against God and God loving the world that he sent Christ into this world to save us from our sins. But of course, those of you, again, well-versed in theology, understand we could take this back another stage. Jesus comes due to sin, but also Jesus comes because of God's eternal purpose to save sinners. You could say the salvation of the elect is the reason for the season. That would be entirely appropriate. Christ came into the world because God determined to save the elect. The incarnation of Christ is God stepping into the world to save his chosen people from their sins. So today, with great joy, I gladly preach a message on the incarnation and its connection with election. Not in some clever form of sermonizing, but because here Paul connects election and incarnation. Verse number 8 refers to Christ as of the seed of David. And then verse number 10 says that Paul endures all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Now these three verses come together. We'll see that as we study it together. But you will note that the verses end with the thought of the elect obtaining the salvation accomplished for them by Christ Jesus. The Bible teaches the doctrine of election. We are uncomfortable mentioning it sometimes. We think it's a hindrance to the lost and perhaps divisive among the saved. Neither is true. It should not divide the converted and it should not hinder the unconverted. You see, we know the Bible teaches that God has chosen a people in Christ before the world began. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. I could have chosen several portions. I thought I'd choose the most well-known. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 4. Again, of course, Paul also writing here. And as he writes Timothy with Ephesians in mind, he also writes this letter to the Ephesians. And he says there in verse number 4, According as he hath chosen us, in him that is in Christ, 
before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And there you have this reference to God the Father choosing us in God the Son before the world began with the determinate purpose that those who are chosen should be set apart and blameless before God for all eternity, that they might know the riches of God in Christ Jesus forever and forever. So the chosen, the elect, are those who are appointed unto salvation. And even back in 2 Timothy, when you read these words, that they may also obtain the salvation, these are words that ring with certainty. That's the great joy of this. There is no doubt, there is no fear that the elect will not be saved. They shall infallibly obtain the salvation which God has purposed for them. Those chosen will be saved eternally. That, of course, is linked to the work of Christ. Note again the words of 2 Timothy 2, the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. You know, we delight in Isaiah 53. Again, that portion that points to our suffering servant Christ himself. And there, of course, in that text, it says, The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That to suggest that Christ will die for those who will not be saved is to suggest in some way that Christ feels to secure the pleasure of God. He does the will of God perfectly. And everyone given to the Son shall absolutely obtain salvation. That's the purpose of God. Christ shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The Bible rings with the certainty that God wins and Christ saves his people. That's the Bible's message. The same, of course, is that thought that resonates in John chapter 6. Please turn across to John chapter 6. Again, you could certainly put the latter verse of Isaiah 53 beside John 6 in your Bible. John chapter 6 and verse number 37 says this, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And again, this idea of the covenant of redemption before time begins, when the Father gives the Son a people, and all given by the Father to the Son shall come to the Son in saving faith. So the Lord will say in verse number 39, And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. You see the certainty here? That the elect will obtain eternal salvation. It is that doctrine that Paul is resting on in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He's thinking of election that be that occurs before time begins. But of course, we all know that those who are elect are in an historical sense not born saved. They're born in Adam. All are born in sin and for some time will live in rebellion. But they will be saved. A change will take place in the purpose of God. Now those who are born and living out their likeness to Adam will in time be converted by God's grace. See, please turn back now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Because here we read of those who were born in sin. We read of those 
who were practicing idolatry. Verse 9 of Thessalonians makes it clear that they turned to God from idols. They were those who loved all the idols of this world. And yet back in verse 4 of chapter 1, it says that Paul, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now here were a group of pagan idolaters. And Paul could say he knew their election. He knew they were chosen of God. Because verse number 5 says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. See, those who are the elect of God are those who hear the gospel and believe the gospel. The gospel comes with power to their hearts and they come to know and love the Savior. They obtain salvation. It's not theirs to begin with, but they obtain it. They come into the enjoyment of it by the mercy and the grace of God's. Again, before I go any further, I realize that I may well lose some of you uh, soon in the passing of time in this message. It may be be, be your desire to shut out the Word of God from your hearts today. But let me ask you the question, are you elect today? Preach, that's not a fair question. How can I know what happens in the counsel of God before time began? Well, let me ask you a different way. Are you a believer today? Have you trusted in Christ today? That's a, if I can use a modern term, that's a binary question. It's a yes or no question. Do you trust in Christ as your Savior today? The answer is very simply yes or no. And if it is yes, you can say and stand before God, thank you, Lord, for choosing me from all eternity. You can get before God in praise and worship God for His sovereign grace. That in His grace and His mercy, He set His love upon you in Christ Jesus. And you came to hear the gospel and believe the gospel. And Paul could say, knowing brother, knowing sister, your election of God. Because the word came in power and in the Holy Ghost. And you ought to fall upon your knees and thank the Lord for His grace. But it is a binary question. Do you believe? And it does allow the answer no. Some of you here could be sitting and the answer is no. So what are you to do? You are not to prove your election. You are to repent and believe the gospel. Your duty right now is not to dig into the annals of time and history because you cannot go back far enough to see what happens in the purpose of God. You cannot go before time began. And so what the Bible does to you, it says to you today, believe the gospel. Trust in Christ and be saved today. Salvation has been obtained by Christ and you can enter into that. Let me be very clear. If you want to believe today, nothing's stopping you. If in your heart there's a desire, I want to trust in Christ. There is no hindrance. There is no obstacle. God is not holding you back. Come freely and obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus. This is good news. 2 Timothy 2 again makes it clear that the elect obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul calls that verse number 8 his gospel. Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. This is the gospel, the good news that comes from the apostle to our souls today. Paul suffers for this, verse 9. Wherein I suffer trouble. 
He is not an evildoer, but as an evildoer, as if he is a malefactor. He finds himself in chains. He's in bonds for the word of God. This unpopular message, preaching Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Greeks' foolishness. Ah, but to us who believe it is a part of God's. And so Paul is in bonds for the gospel. But the gospel itself is not in chains. The word of God, verse number 9, is not bound. And so as Paul encourages Timothy, he tells him the content of the gospel that is not bound. Remember the whole section, again, those of you been here over the last number of weeks will know very well, this whole section is about Paul seeking to encourage Timothy to be bold in the gospel, not to be timid and fearful, but to go forward for the things of Christ. And here again we find him encouraging Timothy. Verse 8, remember. Timothy, remember these things. These things will bring trouble. These things will bring bonds and chains. But these things are the things that lead to salvation. These are the things that are necessary for the elect to be saved. These are the things outside of which there is no salvation. No other way for peace to have peace with God but through these precious truths. And so I highlight for you today four things that must happen for the elect to be saved. Four things, four truths, four situations, four events that must occur in order for the elect to obtain salvation. First of all, incarnation. The incarnation of Christ Jesus is absolutely necessary for the elect to be saved. There is no salvation without Christ Jesus coming into the world. Verse number eight, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David. Now here, allow me to speculate a little bit here. Timothy's a young boy. He's got a godly grandmother and a godly mother. We're told in chapter three that from a child he knew the scriptures, able to make him wise unto salvation. And I am convinced, not speculating now, I am convinced that Timothy would have been taught the Old Testament scriptures regarding the Messiah who would come of the seed of David. This language is used here in verse number 8. The seed of David is language that has particular force at the point and time of the incarnation and then the resurrection of Christ. In both of those events, we see that language of Christ as the seed of David. We see it coming to the fore because the Messiah was coming in David's line, coming into the world to obtain salvation. David is the one from whom comes Messiah, and Messiah is the one as the son of David who secures redemption, so that verse number 10, the elect may obtain salvation. So let me take you back, perhaps as Eunice and Lois did to Timothy. They would take him back and they'd say, Timothy, come and hear Isaiah chapter 11, please. You turn back there. I don't suspect that Eunice and Lois had the scroll, but they'd heard the scroll perhaps in the synagogue. They'd learned these scriptures. And they could have shared these scriptures with Timothy, their young grandson and son. 
Isaiah chapter 11, verse number 1, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Here it goes back to Jesse's lineage. Of course, out of whom comes David. And then verse number 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of God. It is the expectation of a Spirit-filled Messiah to come and save a people from their sins. So I took the time to read Isaiah chapter 9, go back there. And you will note, of course, these verses that are quoted in our Gospels. Christ, the light to the Gentiles. Verse number 6, a child is born, a son is given. One who has government upon his shoulders. Verse number 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David, the only one who can sit upon the throne of David is one of the seed of David. And so there is this expectation of Christ's coming of the seed of David. Jeremiah chapter 3. Sorry, Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah chapter 33. I'm going to show you the three major, the largest prophets, how they all have this theme of Messiah coming of the seed of David. Jeremiah 33, verse number 14. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah in those days. And at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah said, Can you the blessed truth of our justification in Christ Jesus? He is grown as the branch unto David, verse 15. Then one last one, Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. And the verse number 23. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all emphasizing this point. Ezekiel 34, sorry. And the verse number 23, it says this. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. And he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken it. And I will make with them a covenant of peace. And you will know, I don't have time to prove it now, but you will know the language of covenant comes to fruition in Christ, the mediator of the covenant. He is the servant David, the one shepherd over his people. We sang that wonderful hymn. It's a hymn that is retrospective. It takes God's people today back as if they were in the days of the Old Testament. O come, O come, Emmanuel. The thought, the expectation of the Old Testament people waiting and longing for Christ to come. O come thou, key of David, come. There is this longing amongst the people of God that Messiah would come. And so we sing that with gladness because we sing it looking back, knowing that that expectation has been fulfilled, for he did come. And the seed of David did come as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You see, that Old Testament prophecy finds its fulfillment in the New Testament. Please turn to Matthew chapter 1. And the New Testament begins... And this is very, very significant. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1, verse 1. 
it emphasizes the son of David, the son of Abraham. And though Abraham is the first mention in verse number 2, it emphasizes as Matthew is proving the kingly authority of Jesus, that Jesus Christ is rightly the seed of David. And he goes to length to prove that. Verse number 20. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thy son of David. Chapter 2, verse number 5. And they said unto him, of course, this is the wise men are coming and they, they want to know where the king is born. That's their desire. Where is he to be born, the king of the Jews, verse number 2? And the scribes and the chief priests, they come and they tell Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea, he's coming as the seed of David. They knew that. They expected that. And so turn across to Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 1 and the verse number 27. Matthew, in his incarnational account, emphasized that Christ is the son of David. Look also, look 1 verse 27, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Verse number 32, he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give unto him the throne of his father David. You can't read the incarnation accounts without realizing the importance of Jesus being of the seed of David. Verse number 69 of Luke chapter 1. And hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. A horn of salvation. The one who has the authority to save people coming in the house of David. Chapter 2 verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. So much is packed into those words of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Jesus Christ of the seed of David. It assumes his genealogy. It assumes one who pre-existed time itself. One who is not created, but one who is the creator, taking a human nature of the seed of David. One who's born in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin. One who comes in the flesh. God manifests in the flesh. All of this assumed in those words, the seed of David. For the eternal Son of God, to be our Redeemer, He must take our humanity. We know these truths. His coming. God loving the world. God loving His elect. That He sends His Son into the world as the God-man. This is foundational for all the works of Christ. And dear child of God, you must remember this. That's what Paul says. Doesn't he? Verse number 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David. Now we're going to see the rest of it. But you can't ignore the start of it. It is our responsibility as God's people to remember that a king is born. I think that is the dominant thought in the gospel narratives. There's so much involved in Christ's enfleshment. But in Luke and in Matthew, the thought is certainly of Christ bringing in an everlasting kingdom. Jews under Roman oppression, but a king is born. 
And his kingdom is a kingdom that will never, ever end. Jewish oppression. Now, the people of God under Roman oppression again. Paul's in chains. Paul's bound, but the word of God is not bound. Why is the word of God not bound? If Paul's in chains, how come God's word's not in chains? Because Christ's kingdom is everlasting. He rules and reigns on the throne of David. And he reigns forever and forever. And no earthly kingdom can prevent the reign of Christ, the great king. King of kings and lord of lords. He is our king. Can I ask you all a question today? Do you rejoice in Christ as your king? Savior, yes. Sins forgiven, praise God. But is he king of your life? King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. King in the sense of having absolute authority over your life. So I ask you this way. Are you living under Christ's lordship? Does every minute of every day sit under the authority of Christ the King? Every corner of your life, every part of your life, does it live under the authority of Christ your King? Are there parts of your life where right now you're saying, it's my will, not Christ's will? It's my way, not His way. But He comes as King. He comes not to suggest authority, but to demand authority that we would submit to Him for those who love Him keep His commandments. This is our gracious King, but a King that brings His Word to bear upon our lives. Incarnation. Remember the incarnation of Christ, whereby the elect obtain salvation. Secondly, please remember the crucifixion of Christ. Again, back to your text, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 8. Jesus Christ, of the seed of David, was raised from the dead. Of course, resurrection presupposes crucifixion. And Christ indeed is raised from the dead. These are the very basis of Bible gospel truth. Raised from the dead. In order that the elect obtain salvation. What is salvation? Rescuing. Deliverance. Various terms used to define this concept. The problem from which you must be rescued is sin. It's all rebellion. Man has so many problems. But ultimately, when it comes to their relationship with God, their sin is their problem. And through their sin, they sit under the wrath of God. The wrath of God from which they can be rescued by the blood of Christ. But only by the blood of Christ. Without Christ and redemption, there is no rescuing from God's wrath. And sin brings about destruction. But sin is addressed, of course, by God in the cross. Turn, please, to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I have absolutely no embarrassment by going back over these very, very familiar truths today. 
Paul tells Timothy to remember. We're all to remember these things. And so I make it very clear again, there is no salvation without the cross. There is no forgiveness without the cross. Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 26. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. Uh, Of course, the writer here is referring to the priestly ministry in contrast to Christ's final priestly service. But now once in the end of the world... It's a Jewish reference to the end of the age. It's a reference to Christ's first coming. Once in the end of the age, at the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And the idea is there was no other way to put away sin, only by the sacrifice of himself. And so Christ came, verse number 28, once offered to bear the sins of many. You see, for the elect to be saved, they are born in sin, they live in sin, they must have their sins dealt with. But the only way sin is dealt with is when the price is paid for their sins upon the cross. And so Christ comes as the seed of David, but as a king born in humiliation. Crucifixion is taught in the incarnation narratives. The wise men come and they bring gifts worthy of a king. But also they bring the spices of crucifixion. They bring those spices of death. We sang out of the ivory palaces, which emphasize again the fragrance of Christ to connect his death to his glorious coming. He is the Redeemer who came to die. A child appointed to die. For there was no other way for you, dear child of God, to obtain salvation. Remember this. Remember this. Thirdly, resurrection. In this portion, the salvation that is mentioned here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, I believe certainly has a future aspect. We often talk of salvation in the three tenses. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Well, here the will be saved is in view. Verse number 10, that they may also obtain the salvation. And then verse 11 is a faithful saying, if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. It is a resurrection anticipation in view here. The thought of life that is eternal. You see, in rising from the grave, Christ secured salvation in this sense. On this so-called Christmas Day, we turn back to the resurrection account of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You see, you cannot divide the works of Christ. You can't think of one aspect of Christ's work without considering it in the entirety of the gospel redemption. 1 Corinthians 15, the verse number 22 But now is Christ risen from the dead, verse 20, sorry. Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. We shall live in Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 2. But how do we live in Christ? Because Christ is first risen from the dead. His resurrection secures the salvation of the elect. The death of Christ is necessary. We say that, obviously, 
He must purge us from our sins. He must secure the covenant. But we can also say that the resurrection of Christ secures and obtains our salvation. Particularly when we consider salvation in this future aspect. A couple of things to emphasize. We must have all the gospel to have any of the gospel. The liberal churches that deny the miraculous deny the gospel. They want to hold on to some aspect of gospel truth, but you cannot deny virgin birth, you cannot deny resurrection and still have a gospel. You've got to have all. You, you can't select the bits you like. A good teacher, a good example. You, you can't have the historical Jesus they like to have without having the miraculous Jesus. The one who came miraculously. The one who rose miraculously. The one who in his life and in his death and in his resurrection screams to humanity, I am the eternal God and I bring salvation. History confirms that. And you cannot deny that instead of gospel. But because these things did not happen in the corner, his birth was announced. His resurrection was witnessed by many, many witnesses. These things did not happen in the corner. And therefore, praise God, we have the authority and the evidence that this gospel is true. When we see the resurrection of Christ, we can say salvation, praise God, has been obtained. It has been secured. Therefore, receive it. Or reject it under destruction. But you cannot deny the truthfulness of it. You see, we who believe the gospel, we believe the gospel because it's true. Those of you who do not believe the gospel, your unbelief in the gospel does not make it any less true. It's true no matter what you think of it. You may choose to believe a lie and reject the truth. Or believe the truth and be saved forevermore. Remember, says Paul to Timothy, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Finally, proclamation. All of this historical content must be proclaimed for the elect to be saved. That's what Paul says here, verse number 10. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation. Paul makes the point, it's, it's bold, it's startling. His ministry is necessary for elect sinners to be saved. Wow. Why? Why would the Lord do it that way? The Lord sent His Son, incarnation. The Lord orchestrates human history the point of crucifixion. The Lord works miraculously in resurrection. And yet God, in His sovereign wisdom, entrusts the proclamation of this message to His church, teaching apostolic doctrine. That is the will of God. It is the will of God because He deemed it so. He could have used angels, 
But he chose to use people like you and me to share the glorious message of the gospel. That is partly how God chooses to honor us. But also in the weakness of the human instrument, all the glory goes to God. The Christ would have all the glory. Because those who preach the gospel, they must divert the attention from themselves to the Savior. And so, yes, they may endure all things. But as Paul endures all things, he points those for whom he's enduring all things to Christ Jesus. Because he understands the salvation they obtain is not in him or in his ministry, but it's in Christ Jesus. And so he understands that though he is bound at this time, the word of God is not bound. Because God is doing his good things. Through instruments, but also without depending upon one single instrument. There's a lot of things that are hard to wrestle through here. Paul isn't necessary, and yet he's not necessary. He's important, yet he's dispensable. The point of it all is very simple. Nothing can stop the elect being saved. Nothing, no human chains, can prevent the elect hearing the word of God, trusting in Christ, and being saved. The church's ministry is vital, it's important, and we have the privilege of being a servant of Christ to make Christ known to a lost world. Please value that privilege. But also understand that the word of God is not bound, though we may suffer persecution, though we may find ourselves hindered in our personal witness. The word of God will continue to do its work. The elect will hear, and they will be saved. You may end this year downcast with a sense of despondency. Maybe just as I get older, every year I seem to get more grumpy. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. And in a real sense, they are. There's no point in not being realistic. The world in which we live is getting worse and worse and worse at this present time. Paganism reigns. Paganism reigns in this nation. But the word of God is not bound. Christ shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And though Paul is in bounds, the word of God is not hindered so that the elect will obtain salvation in Christ Jesus. It's a good day to remember Christ. It's the Lord's day. We think of our Savior, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. All of these great things give us hope. So therefore, let us be faithful in proclaiming the word, the word in hope and in expectation of God blessing the preaching of his word. Let's bow together, please, in prayer.
If you're here today and you find yourself and you're troubled, you know that you're not right with God. You know that sin is real in your life. You know that you've broken God's law in so many ways. Please do not let the thought of lunch keep you from Christ Jesus. If you're troubled in heart today, please speak to me. Speak to someone. Take some time to talk through these matters. And there are many in this building who will gladly point you to Christ Jesus. Eternal God, we pray that you'd bless the hearts of every hearer. Encourage us. Help us, O Lord, to remember Christ Jesus today. To think of him in all of his person and work. Thank you for the eternal Son of God who took on our humanity. That he might save us from our sins. We rejoice in the gospel today. May it encourage our hearts. May our fellowship together indeed be sweet. As we pray in Christ's name. Amen.